This is another iRaw podcast. To get an idea of how important culture is to an animal, think of an animal that you might know fairly well and imagine abandoning them at the side of the road somewhere very far from any place they've ever been. The, the, the trouble you can easily imagine they would instantly get into, not knowing where to go, not knowing what to do, not knowing anybody, um, possibly getting ambushed or starving, are, are all things that they would learn and know to cope with as a matter of course. Welcome back to The Animal Turn. This is episode three of season two, where we're focusing in on animals and experience. And in today's episode, we're going to look at culture or animal culture. What does that even mean? Uh, I know for myself, when I first heard the word culture uh, in school, I'd never really extended it beyond humans. For me, culture was always a human phenomenon. In today's episode, we learn that that's very much not the case, that culture extends to a variety of animals, and the ways in which it manifests are pretty interesting. Now, my guest today knows a fair deal about animal culture, and this is primarily because of his most recent book, which is called Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty, and Achieve Peace. He's an incredible author, and if you've ever had the opportunity of reading one of his books, you'll know that he is extremely accessible and has a way of painting a picture about the animals in his stories that really make them relatable and quite astonishing and beautiful. Carl Safina grew up raising pigeons, training hawks and owls, and spending as many days and nights in the woods and on the water as he could. He's very well known for his writing, which fuses scientific understanding, emotional connection, and a moral call to action, noting how humans are changing the world and asking what these changes mean for non-human beings, and for us all, in fact. So he is not only the author of Becoming Wild, but has authored 10 books, including his classic A Song for the Blue Ocean, as well as his New York Best Time Seller, and one of my favorite books of all time, Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. His work appears in numerous platforms, and he has won several literary prizes, including the MacArthur Genius Prize for his writing. He was also the host of the PBS series Saving the Ocean, and is the founding president of the non-for-profit Safina Center. wonderful to have you on the show today. Uh, I was just telling you off air that I'm a bit nervous and, and somewhat overwhelmed and excited to have you on the show today uh, because I think your book Beyond Words has probably been the book that I've recommended to most friends ever. Uh, so thank you so much for joining me today, Carl Safina. Wow. Well, thank you. That's very, very kind. And um, I can't imagine what you might be nervous about. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Thank you. Um, So as you know, this is the second season of The Animal Turn, and the whole season is going to be focusing on animals and experience. And before we get into the concept that we're speaking about today, which is culture, uh, I thought it would be nice to just find out how you came to study animals or research animals. Uh, What what is it? What is your... You often write about how other scientists are thinking about uh, animals or observing animals, but what is your background with, with animal research? Well, my my background with research is that I studied um, I studied songbirds when I was in high school and college, especially college. I studied seabirds and birds of prey for about uh, about twelve years after I graduated from college and all through graduate school, and. Um, and I've spent uh, quite a bit of time with researchers who are studying um, other species that I've written about, like um, albatrosses or penguins mm-hmm. or um, uh, macaws. Uh, but before I I studied them, I simply um, I simply always you know had a, a bit of a love affair going with. Uh, animals of all kinds. I don't know why. I've always been extremely fascinated by animals from the time I was very young. And my father's hobby was breeding canaries. So we always had an apartment full of singing canaries. And even as a very small child, I could just stare right through the bars and watch them get on and off their eggs and, and watch them feed 
very tiny babies and watch the babies grow up. Uh, then when I was a, a child, from the ages of about seven to 10, I raised homing pigeons. And I spent a lot of time just standing with them in the coop, just watching their daily, normal, average lives, um, letting them out, watching them fly, feeding them, taking care of them, watching them sort themselves into pairs and uh, 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 court and mate and raise their babies. And uh, their, the broad strokes of their lives always seemed, you know, essentially the same as ours. Mm -hmm. Try to stay alive, um, try to get enough food, try to keep their babies alive, uh, having occasional arguments with their neighbors, figuring out, <laughs> figuring out who they were going to have as life partners, uh, all of those things. So that's what made me want to study animals more formally mm -hmm. when I, you know, when I had to figure out what to do. Uh, to avoid adulthood, and uh, <laughs> science was science was a very good way of avoiding adulthood. Well, there's uh, curiosity built into it in many ways, I think. Exactly. Uh, and you know, I, we've got some geese down down by the lake where I am here in Ontario, and uh, often they line up in a row and they march off, and I think, oh, they're heading off to work now, or they're going home. But often, uh, maybe in a formal realm, I'm not allowed to express it in those ways to say that they're going off to work or to think about what they're doing. Um, well, I, I don't, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think that that's scientific. Science is not supposed to have rules about what you're allowed to think. Uh, mm -hmm. There are other institutions that have rules about what you're allowed to think. Uh, and I, and I decided I was finished with those. I, I liked an institution that uh, let me follow curiosity, wanted to believe what the, what the facts uh, led me to believe and uh, only had some rules about how to sort reality from my um, desire for how reality might be. So, so in other words, some skills of objectivity, but not, not rules about how to think or what to think or what not to think. And there are some scientists who, who have rules like that, but there are a lot who don't. And um, not, not only did I, um, not really cooperate with the ones who have rules about what to think, but I but I found mentors whose only rule about what to think was try to be objective, try to get things right, and then and then believe what what you have found and share it. So when you say um, an objectivity is a is a I guess a great word to bring in here. I've often struggled with the concept of objectivity myself, seeing it more as an ideal type to which we could strive, but maybe not something that we're ever able to truly um, obtain. And of course, that's a, a huge philosophical debate. But when you're entering into your more formalized research and looking at animals, and you're taking your more personal experiences of your pigeons into account, et cetera. How did that shape your actual research? What is it that you, what is it that you do uh, in a, in a formal sense of the word? What do I do in a formal yeah. sense of the word? So when you say you research animals, what, what is that? What does that mean? Do you just watch oh, them? Well, or? What, it, what it meant when I was doing it more, uh, formally and scientifically as a student is that uh, we had certain things that we were interested in, you know, certain questions we were interested in answering with, for instance, with um, the seabirds that I studied, we wanted to know things like, do pairs stay together? If, if mates split from one year to the next, does that have to do with the success or failure of the nest that they had prior, prior, prior year? Um, how many young do they raise and what are the growth rates of those young? So mm -hmm. uh, in other words, you go to a seabird colony, there are thousands of nests. You, you see, you know, some have two eggs, some have three eggs. You see many, many chicks that die during the rearing season in years when, the, when there's bad food supply uh, and then many more chicks that survive in good years. So you might be interested in knowing what is the average or what are the ranges? And you, um, you know, you basically, in a sense, you quantify everything. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, behaviorally, it's the same thing. We wanted to know what their diet was composed of. So we watched them return to their nests. 
and we wrote down, you know, every time they came, we wrote the time. So we would know how many food deliveries they were making and what, what species of fish they were bringing and see if, uh, you know, if some birds were more skilled or, or they were all about average and there were just some good years of abundant food, bad years of scarce food. How did, did that make the chicks grow slower or did that make the chicks, um, you know, some of them starve or what, what's going on is, mm. you know, some of those questions when we were studying them. And have your observations always been, um, in, in quotation marks, outside? Have they always been trying to observe animals in their own spaces, or have you yeah, ever done in, observations in a controlled environment? No, in my case, I'm I'm interested in wild things in wild places, and I'm um, not a person who studied animals formally in a captive setting. But I have to say, I've learned an awful lot about animal psychology from animals that were captive or, or even uh, some domestic ones like our dogs. I'm always learning things from our dogs. Just for instance, a little while ago, one of our dogs, uh, now we're recording this in the middle of the afternoon. Uh, usually the dogs are snoozing all afternoon because they get a lot of nice exercise early in the morning. We usually take them to the beach in the summertime, and then we do the same thing in the evening uh, after we feed them both morning and evening. And in the middle of the day when it's hot like it is today, usually they are just snoozing. So mm -hmm. today, one of our dogs uh, insisted on staring at me while I was working at the computer, and then I, I got up and... Uh, went into another room and she followed me and I went into a different room. She followed me. I went back to my desk. She followed me <laughs> and she was just staring at me the whole time. And I was thinking, gee, I'm, I'm glad you want to be with me here, but um, this is a bit unusual. And, um, and then it dawned on me, uh, you know, maybe she's trying to tell me she wants to go out. So I let her out and, and indeed, she had an urgent need to relieve herself. Uh, now, what was very interesting about that is that she wasn't just scratching the door, knowing that the door has to open or be opened for her to get out. Mm -hmm. she, she wasn't whining at the door, um, which would only mean that she's really focused on getting out and maybe she's trying to get my attention. But she was coming everywhere in the house except the door trying to communicate to me that she wanted me to let her out. Now, unfortunately, she didn't have the words, but she obviously had the plan. The, mm -hmm. the plan is I can't open this door alone. I need him. Um, and I'm going to go kind of pester him and hope that he can figure out that I need to go out. But, you know, that shows planning. Um, it shows what psychologists uh, call object permanence because, she she obviously has the door in mind, meaning she has a mind. So in other words, you can tell an awful lot by the logic of the way that animals behave. And, um, and so what was the experiment? The experiment was, let's go to the door and open it and see if she really needs to go out. And indeed, um, she did very urgently, which is unusual at this time of day, as I mentioned. So you, wow. you, you can learn a lot from some captive settings, but I think also some captive settings can lead you astray if, if you're conducting experiments in ways that are not particularly insightful and you have contraptions that bear no resemblance to their real-world situations or to their normal social groups or that kind of thing. You, you can try to get them to do things that are not really relevant to their minds. And so um, in, in some cases, I think you, you, you learn the wrong things or you, or you don't learn anything. But in other cases, you, you can learn a lot from captive experiments. I think it just it depends on really the quality of the researcher's insightfulness, I think. And I'm, I'm guessing also the how the animals are, are treated and also the you know, the way in which the experiments are put together. I, I saw a really incredible one of monkeys in Japan, I think it was, where he, I forget the researcher's name, but he was trying to understand the speed with which uh, 
they see, I think it was chimpanzees, the speed with which they see and are able to memorize things. So their short-term memory is substantially faster than human short-term memory. Um, but he had a really incredible uh, ethic in that he never made them do any of the experiments. They were set up around around where they were, and these monkeys would come in and take it as an activity or a task that they wanted to to do. And yeah, I've, I mean, I've seen some of that, and that is really mind-blowing I, I would have to say yeah the speed it's it's unbelievable how quickly they uh you know i've i maybe see the first three numbers and then yeah. i can if, maybe if remember you're lucky, whether... right right yeah and they memorize and then... all 10 and then they blank out and they hit them in order exactly in blank squares and uh, uh and they're just, located you... differently right right mm. right, right. Right. That's unbelievable. But in general, I've got to say, I think um, the the ethic of what you are doing when you're observing animals outside, uh, making their own social bonds, would, I imagine, produce very different kinds of results when you're trying to understand their social lives in their own geographies versus what's maybe a manufactured or or potentially even a very sterile environment. Right. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And that brings us kind of to what today's um, focus is on, which is looking at what what I've probably problematically called animal culture, um, because I, anim, humans are under that banner too. But animal culture, could you give us a sense of what culture is? Uh, and I know that's a massive term, but to you, what is culture? Culture is the behaviors, traditions, habits, and even attractions that you learn socially and that are passed along socially. So culture is a purely social phenomenon. It's not something that's born of our genetics or our biological makeup? Well, I would not say it's purely social, but I would say that it has to be social in order to be culture. So for instance, Humans have a genetic ability to learn human-type language. We are born with that ability. Uh, other animals do not have that ability to learn human-type language, or, or at least to be good at it. There are a few that can learn some words or some sentences, but uh, not, not anything like the ease with which um, you know any average human can learn a language. So that is... A genetic ability. But whether you learn English or Hungarian or Vietnamese is purely cultural. And that is what you get from your social group. Usually you get your start in culture from your mother um, or from your parents, um, and then secondarily from your peers uh, or maybe, maybe a wider group of adults. But, um, you know, that varies from species to species. But I, I would say it's true in humans that we we initially get a lot of our culture from our mother, prob probably the lion's share, to mix metaphors. <laughs> so why, why talk? It seems almost, as what you're saying here, seems almost obvious that, of course, animals have culture. Of course, humans have culture. Um, we pass on ideas and traditions. So why would this be a point of contention, uh, or is it still a point of contention among ethologists or people trying to understand animal experience? Uh, I, well, it would be a point of contention um, if you have a very different definition of culture, um, which I think would be, uh, you know, I've, I've just written a book all about this, so I got pretty into the weeds with it. But there are, there are various definitions of culture, maybe 50 published ones, and um, some of them are very unhelpful. For instance, one definition that I read in a, in a published paper is, culture is anything humans do. So in other words, anything that is not human cannot, by that definition, have culture. Even if aliens from another planet came in spacecraft and took us away, we would not, by that definition, be able to say that they have culture. And also, anything that humans do, well, humans sneeze, humans sleep, uh, that's not culture. So that's a terrible definition. But um, ethologists, people who study animal behavior, um, 
have, I think, uh, maybe in the last 10 or 20 years, have come from the, sort of the presumption that culture is a purely human thing to a deeper understanding of what culture is. The kinds of cultures that humans have, and we have many kinds of cultures, have many of the same functions that the cultures of other species have. Human cultures are much more complicated. They're much more technological, mm -hmm. but they, they do essentially the same thing, which is to answer the question, how do we live here? To get individuals into groups that share cultural attributes. Groups that share cultural attributes tend to repel or avoid other groups that share different cultural attributes. That's very true in humans. It's a it's a huge it's a huge source of many of our problems, mm. uh, and it's it's true in other species that are cultural as well. So, so other species are boundary makers too. They they establish their own boundaries of social belonging. Yeah, well, the cult. Well, there are, there are some that I would say are not terribly cultural that establish physical boundaries to territory, but. Mm -hmm. um, there are others that are, are, are more cultural that share a cultural attribute, like it might be the way you sing a courtship song if you're a bird. And uh, in a different neighborhood, they will sing the song differently. That will be less attractive and less appealing to the local birds who only want it sung the way that they're accustomed to it. And that's not terribly different from the way that uh, humans prefer the music of their own culture. Uh, you know, older people don't like the music of younger people and vice versa. <laughs> and from from one culture to the next, we we may often just prefer our own music or think that other music sounds weird. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and this is um, so in, in, in those broad ways, I think that culture works very similarly um, across all ha all animal species, including humans. And do all. So do all animals have culture and does it manifest in the same way across species? No, they they don't all have culture. There are many well, first of all, animals is everything from sponges to whales mm -hmm. and birds, uh, you know, um and humans. Um many many animals do not have culture. Many um a surprising number do, however, and that includes quite a few mammals and birds. Um, I would say some fish, definitely, and um, even some insects. Wow, could you could you give me some examples there? So, when you say some mammals uh, have culture, I know you've written quite extensively about uh, elephants and wolves um, and whales. Uh, what what are some mammals that you would say don't don't have culture, or, well, my, or that my, we don't yet my, know? My recent book is called Becoming Wild, and uh, that is entirely about culture. And mm -hmm. the three examples in that book are sperm whales, macaws, the parrots called macaws, and chimpanzees. Sperm whales have a a family babysitting culture. Uh, family is everything to sperm whales, and they have ways of announcing who they are, what family they belong to, and what clan their family is a member of. Families in different clans avoid each other, but families from the same clan mingle and socialize, and that's because they do things in ways that they expect and understand in terms of mm -hmm. how they travel, the, the speed, the distance from the coast things about how they forage, and things like that. Um, macaws learn a lot about what food is, where food is, what not to eat, what things are dangerous, um, who your friends are, where the good nest sites are. They, they learn essentially all of that. And chimpanzees have to learn just about everything about uh, how to stay alive from their cultural group and their they're, the culture in different chimpanzee communities varies from one to the next, in, including mm -hmm. even adjacent communities can have cultural differences in what they will and will not eat, 
even though it's the, the, same, the same potential food is in both territories. To get an idea of how important culture is to an animal, think of an animal that you might know fairly well and imagine abandoning them at the side of the road somewhere very far from any place they've ever been. The, the, the trouble you can easily imagine they would instantly get into, mm-hmm. um, not knowing where to go, not knowing what to do, not knowing anybody, um, possibly getting ambushed or starving, are, are all things that they would learn and know to cope with as a matter of course, just as with humans, if you were raised among the Inuit, you would know how to live in a very cold environment. You would die if you were left in uh, uh, by the side of the road in Brazil. And if you grew up in the Amazon rainforest and knew how to how to forage for uh, Amazon fruits or hunt monkeys with a blowpipe, and you were taken to the Arctic and left uh, at the edge of the shore, you would just die right away. Mm-hmm. That that's the importance of culture. And and I would say probably of space too. That culture and space have shaped and formed one another. And in giving that explanation, if if different if different groups of the same species have developed different cultures, then what would this mean for conservation or for conservation efforts that are trying to uh, you know sustain a, a basic genetic diversity by by moving animals around the world? Yes, it What's all around you, almost everywhere you look, and makes your life better? Birds. Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. Um, The problem is you could maintain a genetic diversity that way, but you could lose a lot of culture first. And because culture is sort of added on top of genetic ability. Mm -hmm. And so as these different populations blink out, you may you may move animals in as though they're just marbles and they will die at very high rates. And this has happened a number of times with reintroduction programs. You you can't always just release animals thinking that they will know instinctively what to do. They may not know what the food there is. Uh, there was a, pro- a program trying to introduce a type of parrot called the thick-billed parrot into the southwest United States where it had been wiped out from that region. And they just took captive birds and they just let them go. All of them died. Yeah. Uh, with um, things like bighorn sheep that have been released in summer in the high mountains of the Rockies, uh, they die at very high rates because they don't know where to go in the winter. They don't know the migration routes and they don't know the winter range. And it takes several generations for that to be reinvented. So, uh, and presumably there is some culture that has taken uh, a long time to be invented and has been fairly stable for thousands of years mm-hmm. that would not be easily reinvented. Could you give us an example of, of a, a, a cultural dynamic like that that wouldn't easily be reinvented? Well, maybe the thing with the thick-billed parrots, because every one of them died, they, yeah. they they didn't have any success trying to figure out what do we do here. And and that is a question that culture answers for humans and everybody else. It answers the question, what do we do here? Would some people not look at that example and say, oh, this was just a, you know, a mistake of environment. We forgot to include something here. And it's as simple as that. We don't have to think about the complexity of how they relate to one another and to their space as being significant to conservation. Well, not in that case and not not in several other cases that I know about. Um, I think in, in some cases, it probably is as simple as just letting them go. 
Mm. And there have been uh, there have been some very successful introductions. Uh, for instance, wolves in Yellowstone. Part part of the mm-hmm. reason that that succeeded so well was because after sixty years of no wolves, the uh, the kinds of animals that wolves eat were were unnaturally super abundant, and so it really, um, you know, first of all, they they had what they needed right there. That's one of the reasons they were brought there, and they didn't need to go anywhere else. But there's a little asterisk on that also, which is that uh, even there in the winter, they the ones that have tried to follow the prey down and out of the park. Um, they just get shot. So mm-hmm. uh, there's that problem, which is, you know, not really, that problem is not on the wolves. It's, it's a problem to the wolves, but it's, it's not, a, not, a, not a weakness in their ability to uh, adapt to that introduction. So, th- so it varies. Some, some introductions are successful and some fail completely because of, um, of uh, you know, the, the, their cultural needs. So presumably animals that are, reintroduced could potentially develop new cultural dimensions um, or dynamics, but that in general, if this is not, if if one doesn't think about the cultural needs of an animal and tries to relocate them, that this could be devastating for them both socially and physically, um, which right. is... Right, yeah, and I, and I, you know, so one aspect of that really is that you shouldn't wait until there are none left in an area mm-hmm. before you try to add new ones or captive bred ones you you if you have an anchoring culture it would make things much much easier and much more successful and surely there's there's you know surely we would want to preserve the variety of cultures that exist as well not just the genetic uh, makeup we you know with humans increasingly we speak about how we're losing a variety of cultures how there's a standardization of language with uh, you know english dominating more and more uh, languages are dying out for example um but do you think that there's a need maybe for and, and i guess that this is maybe some of your projects with your books uh a need for understanding the variety and the beauty of different animal cultures so that once we appreciate them we might make room and space for them sure that's absolutely the hope yes and um you know, possibly even um, if we understood and appreciated non-human cultures, um, maybe a little bit more of a light would go on about the the need and the urgency to appreciate human culture, to appreciate human differences, uh, and you know, and to accept human differences. So. So far, we've spoken about culture almost, you know, at a species level or at a particular group level. Is there any opportunity for, like, the emergence of multi-species culture, or does that exist? Uh, you know, cultures that are emerging between a variety of different animals, as opposed to just within a group of a particular type. To a certain extent, there there are various animals that recognize the alarm calls of other species. Um, I think even humans in certain situations are tuned into the alarm calls of other species. And uh, I, for instance, I, I was in Trinidad once and we were we were bird watching. We had a professional guide and suddenly he said, oh, Listen, that's that's a motmots that is that is giving the snake alarm, the snake alarm. So we we follow the guide, uh, follow the sound of the motmot. The motmot was about a third of a mile away, and uh, high in a tree, there was the motmot. There were several birds of several other species, maybe a dozen or fifteen birds, and they were all mobbing. Uh, a kind of a boa constrictor. Well, not a boa constrictor, but a kind of a boa, up in the up in the tree there. Wow! So, so the all the birds were in on that alarm, and even our guide was in on that alarm. Wow! I thought, so they, I thought that was really very very interesting and pretty cool. 
That is pretty cool. And I like I think back to even your your story of your your dog telling you that they needed to go outside, that that's almost the emergence of a communication happening between the two of you, a, a language that's maybe just unique to, to your family, uh, that there's a, a development of a new culture happening there. Or, or is, is that too simple for culture? Does culture have to be bigger than what's happening in your home? No, there's plenty of culture in individual homes. That we speak often of culture in various offices and uh, different businesses, but there's plenty of culture in individual homes. It's, it's, as I say, it's the answer to how we do things, and it's learned and passed along socially. So there's, you know, there's little culture and there's big, big culture. Uh, one of the things in homes with with dogs if you take the dog out in, on automobile rides a lot and they like to do that which a lot of dogs do the minute you reach for your keys or or you start to put on your jacket they'll be all over you uh saying you know don't forget me don't forget me i want to go with you um, that's a cultural thing because they have learned that in the in the context of your social relationship with them so how do you think um ordinary everyday folks like myself could learn more about animal cultures and learn to respect animal cultures um or should we should we be respecting them uh, i'm guessing not everything is pretty about uh different cultures <laughs> well I, I you know people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones right there's a lot of things about human cultures that are very ugly exactly uh, yeah. as as well as magnificently beautiful we mm -hmm. we, we span a, a larger range in that regard than any other species. So um, I, I don't want to sound mercenary, but the, the, the best way that I know for people to learn about culture and non-humans is my most recent book, which is only a few months old, uh, because it's, it's so recent, it's pretty up to date. And um, it's, the only, it's the only book I know of out there that is explicitly about this topic Mm -hmm. in uh in both a very general and very specific ways and and it's called becoming wild becoming wild uh, and you you were speaking about it earlier where you look at sperm whales uh, macaws and chimpanzees and i heard you in a recent interview on species unite another podcast where you were speaking about uh chimpanzees and bonobos bonobos mm -hmm. sorry right, um right. <laughs> i completely mispronounced that um and you were speaking about how they have very different cultural practices uh, when it comes to dealing with conflict. Um, could you, and I know that bonobos are kind of a fun example. Everyone wants to talk about bonobos because they're very scandalous and they love to have a good time. Uh, but I also thought it was really interesting how you were juxtaposing the almost the gendered hierarchy of these different groups, how one is led by male uh, chimps and the other tends to be mat matriarchal. Um, but you know the story better. So rather than me try and rehash it, could you perhaps tell us a little bit about that? Okay, sure. So we have two closest living relatives, chimpanzees and bonobos, which many people pronounce bonobos. I, you, you have so much <laughs> company pronouncing bonobos that I would say that there are two ways of pronouncing it. I'm just going to say it's cultural. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah that's fine. That's fine. Uh, so we are equally closely related, and um, uh, they live, uh, chimpanzees and bonobos live, uh, see, I just did it, <laughs> uh, and bonobos live in different, different parts of Africa. Their range is separated by a major river, and they don't overlap at all. So um, two different species, two different places, both equally related to us. Chimpanzees live in a society where the most dominant individual is always a male, and the males achieve dominance always by fighting. And s somebody who has been dominant has to lose in order for uh, a new up-and-comer to become the most dominant one. And what they use dominance for is preferential access to food and to mates, to sex. And mm. um, with uh, bonobos, it's sort of the exact inverse. The most dominant individual is always female. 
females um, sort of form these cooperative coalitions to suppress um, any any violence or any edging toward violence, and um, they suppress it by having fun, not by fighting. So they diffuse tensions with very pro-social things like a lot of grooming, uh, which chimpanzees do also diffuse tensions by a lot of grooming, but mm -hmm. sometimes the tensions break out into violence. And that does not happen uh, to anywhere near the same extent in bonobos. And, and most famously, bonobos deal with conflict by initiating orgies. And, they, and, and when they meet uh, other bonobos from an adjacent community, often it's the same thing. When chimpanzees meet, they are hostile and fearful. Chimpanzees occasionally um, kill each other. There, there is, you know, chimpanzees that have known each other for 20 years uh, might suddenly be lethal enemies and one may murder the other oh. in, a, in a rivalry for dominance. This is a thing we share with them. Mm -hmm. What what might be a lot happier would be if we shared with bonobos their um, insistence that all tension be dissipated, e either by just being nice or um, or just having a, a very fun orgy. <laughs> and this is, I guess, this is also uh, not to say that all chimpanzee behavior everywhere is the same, as you said earlier, that different chimpanzee groups uh, also have different cultural uh, traits. Is that the correct word to use, cultural for, traits? Yeah, I, I, I would say so, and okay. um, very true. In fact, there are some chimpanzees in West Africa. Chimpanzees spawn all the way from West to East Africa, all across the, the forested sub-Saharan belt there. That's their normal native range. Of course, they're missing from a lot of it now because it's been transformed and developed. Um, mm -hmm. But anyway, in the West, there are chimpanzees that are far more mellow, far less prone to fighting and dust-ups and the kind of um, hysteria that you see in the ones in the East uh, and are, are a lot more similar to bonobos in the way that they act and the way that they treat each other than the ones in East Africa. So even there, you have um, these this range of culture with chimpanzees that has to do with social dynamics. You, you have a range of culture with chimpanzees that has to do with um, tools. Some, some chimpanzees make no tools at all. Mm. Um, oh, they make, no, they make no stick tools. The ones that make no stick tools do make some sponges out of moss and leaves for for drinking, but they make no stick tools. And then uh, many others make stick tools. Some of them make little tool sets to do things like break into a beehive where they have three different tools that they use and they carry with them. Wow. So some use rocks as a hammer uh, against a rock anvil. You know, they basically, they'll put a nut on a rock and smash it with another rock. And, uh, and many others do not do that at all. But, but in captivity, they can all learn to do any of these things if they're introduced culturally to it. Why do you think we get so much joy out of seeing uh, animals using tools and developing these types of relationships? Like you, you spoke about, you know, carrying the tools with them and immediately I was grinning. And then I started thinking about uh, crows that are developing all sorts of tools to try and figure out how to get things out of bottles or in busy sidewalks and streets and it, or playing with a bottle cap. I saw a video not too long ago of a, of a, I think it was a magpie or a crow that was cruising down the top of a, a building, would pick up the, the bottle top, fly to the top again, sit on the bottle top and cruise down, it was just clearly having fun. Um, but it just, it brings me such joy every time I see or innovation, I guess, from, from a different, from a different animal. And maybe it's the same with humans, but do you think there's a reason why we, we get such satisfaction out of watching animals do these things? I, well, I mean, to speak only for myself, uh, I think that it's because the the worst thing a human can experience is isolation 
and a sense of being alone. And I think that when we see other animals having fun, we, we understand that they have emotional lives, that they mm-hmm. have an emotional range, that they can do things like, uh, like we do, like, you know, pull a sled up to the top of a snowy hill and slide down again. You see a, a raven or a magpie in these videos do the same thing. There's a video online of swans that are surfing. They keep going back out to the surf break and riding the waves in. That's amazing. Uh, and things like that. So I think it shows us that we're not, we're not alone on Earth. And, and even though our favorite story is that we're the only ones that matter and that um, we're, we're better than everything else, that's that's a very lonely kind of isolating story i find mm. uh and i i love being in this beautiful densely populated world of all kinds of other amazing uh and fantastic and lovely life forms that are capable of enjoying life and and one of the things that we really don't see in wild animals is depression or um, suicide is unheard of in wild animals. Um, But those things do exist in some captive animals Mm -hmm. and they exist a lot in humans because I think, you know, part of the problem is humans have, um, we've domesticated ourselves and part of that domestication involves a lot of captivity. Um, You know, like, uh, uh, like Rousseau said, man man thinks himself free, but is in but is everywhere in chains. Mm. And I think the freedom of seeing a magpie sliding down a snowy roof or swans surfing is, is something that we can find inspiring. Actually, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, this gets me thinking. So you're speaking now about wild animals and captive animals, and in general, you've written about wild animals and what many would call uh, charismatic species, species that I think many humans already love and adore. Uh, you know, the idea of whales singing, and there's a story that you have in Beyond Words about a whale and an elephant communicating um, potentially, and that there are there's just a lot going on. Um, but I think that humans are already somewhat in awe of these animals. Would you ever in future consider, I don't know, perhaps writing a book about domesticated animals and the types of cultures that they that they live in? And, and they're not always pretty cultures, I suppose. Um, or is there a reason you stay away from from talking about kind of some of the ugly, the ugliness in some of the cultures and relationships we have with humans? I mean, with animals. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think that there are a couple of things. One, one is that I'm I'm really about wild things in wild places because that is the the extinction crisis mm. is the main thing that professionally concerns me, and um, there are there are huge issues with domestic animals and how we treat them and how they experience their lives. Um, but that has not been something that I have a unique window on. Mm-hmm. I, I think my experience with wild animals um, is very, very broad. Uh, I've had the uh, I, I th- unique to anybody that I know um, because of the way that I started my studies and then have written these books where I, I go with researchers who have been studying mm-hmm. particular species for uh, you know, 30 or 40 years, I, I, I don't know anyone else who has spent a lot of time with elephants, albatrosses, giant tuna, mm. uh, y- you know, sharks. It's um, my, my range of experience in the, in the, on the land and in the ocean. Um, and, and my experience with uh Training certain wild animals, I used to be a falconer, mm-hmm. um, and all of that stuff is just um, is something that um, you know blows away my experience with domestic animals. So yeah. I think that I should stick to what I know the best. And um, there are there are many many advocates for domestic animals and for changing how we treat domestic animals. I- interestingly enough, for me, I was invited 
to be the keynote speaker at a conference on um, uh, the welfare and well-being of of uh, dairy cows. Mm. Uh, I I couldn't believe that anybody <laughs> wanted me to speak there, but it was it actually made for a very very interesting series of interactions and discussions because um, luckily for me the audience was pretty open to what I was saying and um, and uh, we we had you know I think they were very unfamiliar with a lot of what I was talking about I was very unfamiliar with what they do for their mm-hmm. livelihoods and, and and that was that was really good. Yeah, I think I think in asking that question, uh, even now when you bring up dairy cows, it wasn't so much maybe framing it as the ugliness was the wrong way to to think about it. Maybe focusing as you do on the beauty of different, you you really bring to light kind of the awe and the amazingness of different uh, animals in in right. a way, well, and and then I think. Oh, imagine imagine hearing about the beauty of social relationships between cows. Uh, would that, as you called the the extinction crisis, would that maybe uh, help in some way? But maybe, as as you say, there are there are other folks. But yeah, it must have been really interesting having this type of conversation at a at a dairy conference. Yes, it, it was, and I I think well, you you sort of raised the second problem that I wanted to touch on um, that I, I had forgotten to get around to. Um, and that is that because culture is socially uh, is socially learned and socially passed along, there there is a tremendous and ongoing and constant and systematic disruption of any kind of culture mm-hmm. in most domestic animal operations because of taking babies away from their mothers. Um, you know, hatching birds without any kind of social hatching poultry, for instance, in incubators, they, they never, they never are part of the social group at all. Um, and that kind of thing. I, I think, I think if I looked around, I could find, I could find plenty of really good operations that would allow me to think about a much richer conversation about Mm. it. But as I said, it it hasn't really been my background. And I, I almost feel like uh, I'm in, intruding even on the subject there because there are a lot of people who have devoted a lot more time and thought than I have to the issues of domestic uh, animals and livestock. Well, you've done a whole lot for uh, thinking through wild animals, and I think certainly bringing imagination into into. I, I don't think I will ever see a, a sperm whale or or a wolf, uh, and yet somehow in reading your words, I feel as though I can relate to them and understand their lives, uh, even through your use of words like uh, this came up a bit in in episode two. Your use of words like mother and and you know father and leader. These these kind of they're relatable. I, I think I get a sense of what it is you're saying when you speak about culture, which is mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's quite something. Um, as we're nearing the end of the episode here, uh, I give folks an opportunity to read a quote that they think maybe sums up some of their ideas, either from their own work or from uh, someone who's inspired them. Do you have a, a quote to read today? I have two quotes from other people that I put in the beginning of my book, Beyond Words. And one is from Alfred Russell Wallace from 1869 in his book called The Malay Archipelago. He, along with Charles Darwin, was the co-discoverer of natural, what, what has become called natural selection as one of the processes of uh, evolution of species. So here's, here's what Wallace said. I thought of the long ages of the past during which the successive generations of these things of beauty had run their course with no intelligent eye to gaze upon their loveliness. To all appearances, such a wanton waste of beauty. This consideration must surely tell us that all living things were not made for man. Their happiness and enjoyments their loves and hates, their struggles for existence, their vigorous life and early death would seem to be immediately related to their own well-being and perpetuation alone. Wow. And then another 
passage that has always reached out to me and to many other people is from Henry Beston in a book called The Outermost House, written in 1928. He's an American. We patronize them for their incompleteness, for their tragic fate of having taken form so far below ourselves, and therein we err, and greatly err. Hmm. For the animal shall not be measured by man. In a world older and more complete than ours, they move finished and complete, gifted with extensions of the senses we have lost or never attained, living by voices we shall never hear. They are not brethren. They are not underlings. They are other nations, caught with ourselves in the net of life and time, fellow prisoners of the splendor and travail of the earth. Wow. Wow. That, that brings to the fore so much, uh, especially when thinking about culture, because so often we, we compare animal culture against our culture as though somehow it's deficient. But here, that quote kind of frames, look at their culture as being where it is now, as being complete, as being beautiful. You know, the, the main thing, the main way we treat them is we take an answer sheet that's about us and we give them that test. They are not us, so they will never be as as good at being us as we are, just as we will never be as good as, as uh, at being an elephant or a whale or a bird as they are. We, we are less peaceful, less strong. Um, we our vision is worse our hearing and sense of smell are worse uh, our strength is worse we can't fly we can't navigate underwater they do all of these things if a if a humanoid could do that uh, we would put a cape on them and we would call them a superhuman superhero mm -hmm. but because these are other creatures that actually exist we say we don't care yeah, and, and, and like what starts to happen to your thinking when you start to say, okay, they're not somehow backwards and in history and they are here with us now. They evolved on the same time scale uh, when we start to take different cultures uh, seriously as and, and for where they are right now. How does it start to change the questions we ask and, and the answers we find, um, which is really really profound i think right and and for me it's it it feels more like who are my neighbors here mm. in the world who yeah. who am i here with and where where have they come from to 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 get to exactly where i happen to be with them do you see the kind of work you're doing now as a as an emergence of kind of i know this is a contradiction in terms but of like an animal anthropology where there is is perhaps the beginning of a deep interest in animal cultures and how they manifest in geographically specific places. Uh, do, do you see that as being the beginning or what the work you're doing is the beginning of this? I, I guess you could say that. I never really you know, saw it in those terms, but I, I think the terms fit. And I think that uh, like, an, like an ethnographer, uh, who would be working now with human cultures, there's a great sense of urgency because we, you know, we don't even value human cultures enough to make sure that they maintain a footing in the world. And with other species, the, the need I think is more urgent, but, but maybe if we, maybe, as I said, if we saw it in other species, it would, it would help to gentle our own approach to the world. Mm. That's that's incredible. And I really love the quotes as well about beauty. Um, I know that you've said in several places that to experience a part of animal experience and human experience and is is looking at and appreciating beauty. So perhaps just in this, this last little while of the, the episode, could you tell me why you think beauty is so important to animal experience? Oh, well. Um... Here's here's the thing, I guess, to try to boil it down. Um, if there are many animals that are camouflaged, 
and we can easily understand why they are camouflaged because if they stand out um, think of a bird on a nest if a bird on a nest stands out it is much more likely to be detected uh, and eaten or have its young ones or its eggs eaten and so it needs to be hidden the ones that the ones that can be seen wouldn't last as long mm. and wouldn't have as many surviving offspring that's a nice story and it's true but the other true story is there are in fact incredible numbers of birds that are unbelievably bright and do everything they can to stand out and that's because unlike the thing that we call natural selection, which is a misnomer, the, the environment isn't selecting them. It's weeding them out and filtering them. But what, what Darwin called sexual selection is actually selection. And what are, what are they selecting? When you see a, a lot of what seems like the totally arbitrary physical beauties among many kinds of animals. And it's especially visible to us among birds because birds are the most abundant, most visible wild animals. But if you think of fish or insects or many other things, um, you can see that there's a lot of what seems like very, very arbitrary beauty. And mm -hmm. a lot of that exists because it has literally been selected during the course of courtship for many hundreds of thousands and in fact millions of years that 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 which is beautiful is preferred and life actually chooses beauty for itself mm -hmm. and that i think is astonishing and very profound i think so and it shows an appreciation for beauty like a and, and this ties together the two quotes that you spoke about where we tend to think that only humans can appreciate art, only humans can appreciate music, only humans can appreciate beauty. But when you unpack it like that, the world has always appreciated beauty. Um, and and it, it's really hopeful, I think, that, that maybe we'll start to move towards more beauty and, and choosing things for beauty. I think beauty is a is a very very short, easy answer to the question of right and wrong and good and bad. A, a thing is right or good if it adds beauty to the world, and it's wrong or bad if it subtracts beauty from the world. Mm. Of course, what then becomes complicated is different cultures and different groups might might think of beauty differently. Um, but then that's also why different there are different ethic, ethical quandaries in different cultures, right? Um, we all well, you think... know, I think, I think that the, the kinds of beauties that seem only in the eye of the beholder, th those, those, are, those have to do with the new things that humans have invented in human culture. So, you know, you might like a certain style of art. Somebody else might not like that style of art. But beauty... Beauty in the in the big sense with a capital B in the in the natural world has a very strange universality to it. So for instance, flowers exist only to attract pollinators. They they look the way they do and they smell the way they do only to attract pollinators. We should not see flowers as any more interesting than we see leaves or roots or or stems. And yet we see flowers as very beautiful. They, and we're not pollinators. We're not descended from pollinators. We have no business liking flowers, but we do because of this very strange universality to what is beautiful in the world. And, uh, and I think that applies to lots of other things. You know, the, the way a sunset looks, the sound of a breeze in the trees, a view of the water, even the fact that most people's favorite colors are either blue or green. And mm. those, those are not rare or special colors. Those are the most abundant colors in the natural world, the sky and, the, and all of the living vegetation of the world. Uh, you know, so I, I think um, 
so I'll stick with what I said. I think I think beauty has a very strange and profound universality, and I think that it's a it's a a quick short check on seeing whether something is good or bad. Well, I think it's a it's a great way to to end off the episode here today. Um, before I say goodbye to you, uh, if people want to find out more about the work you do, uh, find out how to buy one of your books uh, or connect with you, how can they do that? Oh, I'm very easy to find. You can go to carlsafina.org or my not-for-profit organization is called The Safina Center, and that is safinacenter.org. And Safina is spelled S-A-F-I-N-A. So carlsafina.org or safinacenter.org. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, I I hope that everyone decides to go and make something beautiful today. Uh, Thank you so much for your time and for, for being with me here today. Oh, well, I appreciate it enormously, and um, it's been really, really a lot of fun talking to you, so thank you so much. Once again, a huge thank you to Carl Safina for joining me today. Thank you to Jeremy John for the great logo, to Gordon Clark for the incredible bed music, and to Animals and Philosophy, Politics, Law and Ethics, Apple, for sponsoring this podcast. Next time, I'm going to be speaking with someone about the idea of aesthetics and beauty. So we kind of ended off this episode perfectly. Uh, I look forward to connecting with you then. If you want to connect with me in the meantime, you can find me on Twitter. That's at Claudia F. Town. That's Claudia, F-T-O-W-N-E. Or you can connect with The Animal Tone directly, which is at The Animal Tone. This is The Animal Tone with me, Claudia Hertzenfelder. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!